0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. Before we get to today's session, I just want to give you a heads up. I'll be on vacation next week, so there will not be a new episode next Monday, but tune in the following week and we'll have a great new lunch therapy session ready for you to listen to my guest today, or my patient today, is a nice Jewish boy who's made a career out of being a nice Jewish boy. Jay Cohen is something of an internet sensation. He's got 18 million likes on TikTok, that's 18 million. He has a New York Times best-selling cookbook called, appropriately enough, Jewish. And Katie Couric is such a fan of his that he made her matzo ball soup and brought it to her house when she was sick, and she put it all on Instagram, which is pretty amazing. In today's session, we talk all about cooking and body image.
1: You know what it could be like to have a lot of old Jewish women sliding into my DMs being like, you don't really eat that. How can you eat that?
0: The Food Network shows that Jake used to watch after school.
1: Ina Garten, and then right after Ina was Giada, and then right after Giada was Rachel.
0: And ruffling feathers online.
1: I don't need the world to love me. I don't need to be everyone's favorite chef. I'm not looking to take over the world.
0: So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Jake Cohn. All right, Jake. Well, thank you so much for doing lunch therapy. My pleasure. So happy <laughs> to be here.
1: Love, I'm a, I'm a big luncher.
0: Oh, good. Well, it's so funny because I did a, a call out to my readers or my followers on Instagram last week, and I asked, who should I have on lunch therapy? And the first response I got was Jake Cohn's biceps.
1: Oh my God. Um, I mean, you know, it's hot girl summer. You gotta, gotta <laughs> be ready.
0: So what are you doing? Are you like lifting weights? Are you doing p- push-ups? Are you doing some kind of special Pilates? People want to know.
1: <laughs> it is a little bit of everything. I think it was a that kind of like a natural snowball of like everyone else in quarantine. Peloton became like my obsession, but I joined the cult very into it. Um, and from there, as COVID is kind of like, again, who knows what's happening by the time this come out, we could be back in lockdown with the Delta. God, I but hope not, yeah. I, I, I mean, but uh, once kind of like our gym was back to no mask, we were like, all right, let's get a trainer now. Let's keep this momentum going, rejoin mm-hmm. Equinox. Like now, now it's like six days a week working out
0: 6 days oh, a week? That's so much. I just I just rejoined Equinox too and I go 5 days a week, but I guarantee you I don't work as hard as you do.
1: I'm a big I love the classes, big ropes and rowers guy, no, like MetCon, no. anything I don't, where it's like mm, I don't want anyone energy.
0: looking at me while I exercise. Like the idea of someone watching me exercise is the most mortifying thing. So I, I just put my headphones on, I get on a treadmill, I run. I used to be able to run 3 miles in 30 minutes, which was pretty good. And, That's great. But now I'm like you know, I do like a mile in in 10 minutes and then I kind of slow down and just like walk.
1: And I will say the saving grace of all of this. And as a, like a born and bred New Yorker, the one thing, especially coming from a Jewish family, the one thing that you would never do as a native New Yorker is ride a fucking bike in the city. Like who does that? My mother would kill me. Yeah. And then the pandemic happened. And I started, I got like, I got the city bike membership, started biking around I'm so obsessed. I think New York has also done an incredible job, uh, putting a lot of funds towards revamping bike lanes and having them be like super like big and divided off from the street. And it's been the easiest way to get around the city. So nice to just like have that outdoor experience. Um, and then on top of it, it, it's like, it gives me an excuse to wear like athleisure wear to every meeting I have. It's <laughs> like, I, I biked here, what do you expect?
0: So what does your mom think of that?
1: she's, she's, I mean, she's just is, she doesn't really love it. but especially Alex, Alex hates it.
0: I hate um, it too. I mean, I, when I drive my car in LA, which admittedly is different than New York and there's like a bicyclist in the street. I'm like, you're going to die. Like be careful. Like I'm so terrified for bicyclists on the streets of LA, especially like with the ones that are like in traffic, like weaving in and out. I'm like, what are you doing? you are going not, like yeah. 40 miles per hour. You know, um, have
1: you seen um, what was It's a it taxi. The one, not tax. Uh, the one with with Jimmy Fallon and Queen Latifah uh, and Janelle uh, Boone. Like where the it was that this, this. I loved it. It was such a great movie. And Jennifer Esposito. It was like one of it was Jennifer Esposito's best. best I
0: think you're of- the only one in the world who thinks that's a really good movie. But keep going.
1: It's a it's a great movie. But it's this <laughs> opening scene of like this biker and they're like going around the city and jumping and like jumping off the bridge and onto a truck and then onto it was like parkour craziness and then like it the helmet comes off and it's queen latifah uh um, oh that's hilarious that okay. is not how i'm biking it's <laughs> very much a leisurely thing.
0: yeah so you build in exercise naturally into your day as you go to meetings as you have things have things you just hop on the bike i mean that's what um i feel like like uh robert Sitsuma, is that who it was like one of the food writers in new york famously like, just like rides his bike everywhere oh uh, no not him um What's, a guy, what's his name? Michael Musto, the gay gossip columnist. I, I used to always see him on his bike going around New York. So it's a, you know, it's a great character thing. If you live in New York, it's like you become that guy on the bike. Love it. <laughs> well, Jake, we're, we're not quite ready to do your lunch therapy yet. We, we banter for the first 10 minutes in case you weren't familiar. But before we get to the actual therapy, I wanted to ask you about your book. Because for people who are listening, who don't know, you have a book out called Jew-ish. That uh is taking the world by storm. And I wanted to know like, how does it feel to have a book out? How's the experience been? Are you enjoying it?
1: Yes, I am enjoying it now. I will say if every part of writing a book, and you know this, you've done it before, you're doing it now, every part is a different type of hell um, because it's you're putting so much work into it, so much energy, both physical and emotional, um, that I think it really, really took a toll on me having the launch happened still in like lockdown where everything was virtual. I couldn't see people. And this book was so personal because all the recipes were tested and developed at Shabbat and with this intention about gathering and sharing with others and people that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it gave me this opportunity to really just put my head down and focus on it being a success, um, which I'm very blessed that it was. And I, I think it's, it's become a little bit bigger than me. I think that there's this concept, I'm sure you've heard this in like in your family or, or or whatever of like when people talk about figures or people, places, things, and it's either good for the Jews or bad for the Jews. Like <laughs> sure, like, of like, ben, like Ben Shapiro, bad for the Jews. Jake right. Cohen, I want, I want always, wanted to I was like, good for the Jews. Right, right. Um, so like, I get this call for, I got the call from my editor when it, it made the Times list, which was like,
0: Amazing.
1: No one, no one expected that to happen. And one of the things that the first thing she said was like, "I don't think a Jewish cookbook has ever made the list before."
0: Oh my God, Joan Nathan is like punching her screen right now.
1: I mean, no, to, <laughs> Well, to, to her, to her defense, like, and I love Joan. She blurbed the book. She's an icon. I'm just kidding. I didn't mean um, to. I didn't mean to no, 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 <laughs> no. But um, it's because there wasn't that uh, designation. Yeah, like cookbooks didn't have their own category, so no cookbooks really made the oh, list oh, until. Okay. Got it. So for the majority of her books, it was just in right. She would have been there. Everybody. She would have been there. But she you're the first.
0: There. But you've you've done such an amazing job. Of I mean, my mom is a is a bigger fan of yours than she is of mine. Like truly, <laughs> she's like, why don't you do what that Jake Cohn's doing and make some Jewish food? <laughs> but but I feel like you've like wait wait what you've done so well is like you chose your niche but your niche is authentic to who you are. So it's not like you're pretending to be really into Jewish food. Like you are really into Jewish food, but you found a way to like make it really fun and personal. And, um, and I guess my, my only question for you is like, do you think eventually you want to break out of that niche and like, do you like Italian food or do you like a cookbook of like, you know, Polish recipes or something?
1: So, that is a very interesting question because I do think that there is two sides of that. Will I always be focusing on just Jewish food? No, because every day I, I'm interested in something else. However, what I will say is when I pitched this book, which was kind of a result of hosting Shabbat and, and starting to really find this passion around Jewish identity and food um, and this opportunity to fill a void in, in the market. Mm-hmm it unlocked something that I wasn't really expecting. When you think about everyone in food and what they're taught and if they were really passionate and follow all of the steps. I went to CIA, I worked at three Michelin star restaurants and the trendiest spots in New York. And then I started paying my dues in, in test kitchens across media. Um, Jewish food is not really reflected in that. You don't mm-hmm. learn Jewish food in culinary school at the fanciest restaurants that no. are deemed good. <laughs> it's not Jewish food, even in publications. You get like one week around uh, Passover and one mm-hmm. week around Hanukkah in which you can maybe have one story focusing Jewish chefs, um, and it honestly felt. And I've had a lot of other young Jewish chefs in this industry who are kind of shifting their focus to Jewish food and have connected with me, it felt like I finally understood what I was doing. I finally Mm -hmm. understood my voice because whether you like it or not, if you're raised in a Jewish household, religious or secular, so much of your life, your definitions of hospitality, your definitions of comfort food, your definitions Mm -hmm. of all of that are rooted in Judaism. Mm -hmm. And I think to when I finally accepted that that was something that was not only okay to lean into, but was something that was worthy of having the fancy cookbook spread with the resources mm-hmm. behind it and have celebrities posting pictures of it and it not being just like, it's not kitschy, this is mainstream. And it was really, it's really emotional. I did a lot of crying. I think the I, the whole process was like very tough, but It wasn't until like Rachel Ray, when I finally saw the segment, I did the, the, I did promotion on Rachel Ray and you don't see like the intro or the outro, um, because that's filmed separately. And it finally aired on TV and she's like, she just, she really like gave it a really heartfelt rape review. And I think part of it was the fact that she had never really seen a Jewish book like this presented Mm -hmm. in that way and that made me super emotional um and I like was hysterically crying but well don't uh, cry
0: yet because your therapy hasn't started I know I know I know save it
1: but I I think I think at the end of the day it just there's so much more to do yeah there's so much more to do in the in the in the the realm of of Jewish food and and how broad the diaspora is and if Mm -hmm. I could be a player to help navigate separate from myself but again for the Jews and like push Jewish food and make it more popular and more mainstream and a time right now in which we could use all of the good press we can get. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the best use of my time and my skill set.
0: Absolutely and it's so interesting because it makes me think about the old gatekeepers because I watch um, PBS cooking shows every Saturday and Chris Kimball has his Milk Street show and he's just like this old, cranky, white, waspy guy. And I feel like he represents like the old guard of like who decided what was tasteful, what was good. And, you know, he has his place in the firmament, don't get me wrong, but it feels like things are shifting in terms of like what kind of food is being put forward. I mean, the new issue of Bon Appetit cause I know they're struggling, but they're trying really hard now to reinvent themselves. It's almost entirely food from other culture, from other cultures, yeah. but from cultures that aren't traditionally white cultures and it's, and um, or white, white Christian culture. So I feel like we're part of an exciting shift and you're definitely riding that wave in a great way. So mazel tov, as they say, <laughs> but now as they say. we must, we must begin because you've, you've stalled long enough. So Jake, what did you have for lunch today?
1: Um, so I went to Two Hands. Have you been to Two Hands? No, yeah, It's this, it's this Australian cafe and it's, it's very like shishi, and they do all these bowls and it's this, they have this thing that I love called the Brasca bowl. And it's like all oh, the like charred broccoli and cauliflower with hummus and a poached egg. And it's like very light and bright and healthy and kind of goes with my, my lady who lunches vibe because I have throughout the pandemic, I think the biggest shift was that nights have become so sacred for me and my family. And like, I'm, I don't like to go out and I don't like big crowds. And I also, at the same time, love seeing people and I thrive on that energy, which seems a little back and forth. um, But I've become just obsessed with like meeting people for breakfast or lunch meetings. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if I want to see you, it's like, come, let's grab, let's grab a bite. We'll go. Gertie has become my favorite in Brooklyn. I get like a bagel. Ooh, let's go there Wait,
0: when, when you have lunch next week. Let's do oh it. Oh my
1: God. Wait. Yeah. They might be close. I'm going to check. If not, okay. if they, I, they might, but I'm going to plan a, a nice lunch for us. Okay. Don't you worry.
0: Um, Wow. Okay. And by the way, I, I know I'm a professional lunch therapist and I shouldn't be having lunch with my clients, but we'll be done with our lunch <laughs> therapy by the time that we have lunch. But um, well, the first thing that occurred to me, and this is something we talked about when you came on my Instagram live, but you mentioned health and healthy. Uh, and I think a lot of people are always curious with food writers and cookbook authors who have, you know, in your book, your recipes for Kugel and recipes for, you know, latkes and rainbow cookies. And so how do you well, I guess, what is the role of healthy? What does healthy mean to you when you describe your lunch as healthy? What is your version of healthy?
1: My response to that is that this time of my life, which I'm actually also in the best shape of my life, which has been a strange feeling. Cause I was, I'm someone who's struggled with my weight my entire life. I was a very heavy kid and it wasn't until I was much older. And then I've always fluctuated and, and yo-yoed and I've done every diet, every cleanse, every restriction. And this is the first time in my life that I'm doing none of it. And it's been the best. So mm. yes, today I had a really healthy lunch. Um, and then there's going to be a day in which I have a really indulgent, oh my God, the night before I had this great lunch today, two nights ago, or maybe it was last night. I lose track of time. Um, I smoked too much weed, but um, <laughs> the I went to Loring place for dinner with my father-in-law and we went wild. We just we got the calzone, we got cheeseburgers. Right. We, they said obviously he sends all the desserts. Um, and to me, I never want to deprive myself because it's like this is a great meal that I'm going to enjoy and savor. And then the next day, it's like great. I just don't do it every day.
2: Mm-hmm. And well, that I
1: idea just saw
0: of- yeah, I just saw Roxanne Gay, the writer, has a newsletter and and she posted a clip from it that that I just started reading about how she's had to unlearn um a. a, a ascribing like values to foods as like, this is good food, this is bad food, you know, because I think that's ultimately unhealthy because it sort of makes you feel like, I I struggle with this, which is, this happened to me yesterday. It's like, if I go to the gym and I go, I go like, I go like five days a week and then I drink smoothies for lunch. Like, and I try to be quote unquote healthy, but if I skip a day of the gym, so I skipped it yesterday, I ordered a fried chicken sandwich for lunch and it's like a snowball though. It's like now, like today I have like a pastry and like a bunch of crap. So, you know, it's like, I can't, I have a hard time sticking to, or, or finding that balance actually, like being able to f- say, like, I went to Lauren place one night. Now I'm having a brassica salad for lunch.
1: I think the, the greatest the lesson that I've like internalized is like this yoga saying that I, I did a lot of yoga in college and I became very close to my yoga instructor. I ended up moving into her mother-in-law's like apartment uh, like mm-hmm. for my senior year it was a whole thing. But um, the idea of like breathing and having your like mind empty and meditations of clearing your mind and focusing on one thing. And the response is always your mind is gonna wander. And when it does, don't beat yourself up, just bring it right back
2: to focus. Mm-hmm.
1: And I've used that kind of mentality towards my approach to food and eating and diet and exercise, because there are gonna be days when I wake up and you know what, I feel like shit. I don't wanna go to the gym or it's raining out. And if so, it's like, I'm not gonna go to Equinox. I'll, I'll do a quick Peloton class. Sometimes I'm not gonna get on the bike for Peloton. And I'm just not feeling it. And like five minutes in, I'm just like, Cody Rigsby, I love you, but you fucked <laughs> up on this one and I'm out. Um, and I just give myself permission for all of that because my value is not dictated by a workout or a meal or a caloric intake. And it's like, Whoa. I'm not I'm not trying to tell anyone how to, they should live their life or, or how they should treat it, but it's also quite triggering. you know what it could be like to have a lot of old Jewish women sliding into my DMs being like, you don't really eat that. How can you eat that? <laughs> you be so it's almost like it's, it's shaming me yeah. for, my lifestyle which I, I hope my mom is, wasn't
0: one of them no
1: no no. no. <laughs> but that's something that that a lot of people will comment on things like, oh yeah there's no way there's no way you eat this stuff
0: I get and, that all the it, time I mean maybe not as much as you but like people are like how do you I get that like constantly like how do you eat like this and not weigh 500 pounds like how do you eat pasta twice a week you know and you know
1: it's we it's, gotta stop that that, that yeah, question's gotta go. it out. is a
0: bad question yeah but I wanted to ask you I mean emotionally growing up overweight or chubby or however you described yourself. I mean, when you, when you go back into that frame of mind or, or you return to those feelings, I mean, did you, was it, was it, was that a huge issue for you? Was it something you struggled with in terms of like how you felt about yourself every day? Were you aware that you were chubby or was it something that, and does it, does it affect you now?
1: I mean, yes, I think it's, it's, I have a, I feel like I know a lot of people that were chubby and have gotten into shape. And I think there's that, Mentality that you're always going to be that chubby kid because, mm-hmm. in those formative years of, of connection and, and uh, community building and friendship building, that was always part of the equation. And you throw on the fact that I was this chubby queer kid in the closet, mm-hmm. also a Jew. And it's just like, all right, I am so much the other that I just felt a lot of shame around everything in terms of my identity. And it wasn't until it's it's really actually funny. Like, I mean, it's not funny. Not all of this can be quite traumatic. But um, in high school, it was probably not until my end of junior se- the the summer between my junior and senior year, I pretty much just like went crazy, and I was just like, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna make this change. And I started going to the gym probably twice a day, mm-hmm. um, and I lost a crazy amount of weight. And I really leaned into cooking and starting to throw these like little dinner parties for my friends. I started building this community. Mm-hmm. I started having more interactions with the the quote unquote, cool kids. Um, and I went from being just a nerd to someone that had some social standing which is mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of life, like not important because all those cool kids have amounted to, to nothing. <laughs> but, um, which is funny because I it, uh, there were a couple of gay kids actually, I only really know one other. There's like one other kid in my class, both gay. We're not out in high school. And both of us are probably the most successful of like the graduating class, just because I feel like when we came into that tower Mm -hmm. of our own identity, it it just kind of snowballed from there. But I think it, it was something that has followed me my entire life when I was working at uh Danielle I gained a lot of weight because I would get off these crazy like 20 hour days and go and just buy a pint of ice cream and eat it alone in my apartment um and then when I worked at ABC I lost a lot of weight because I was struggling with um with uh, like a digestive issue
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and working like such crazy hours on the line was just like I was dropping me like crazy and then it's fluctuated throughout the years different test kitchens there have been different people that I've worked with that have made some incredibly harmful body comments towards Uh, me that have, have um, definitely affected that. Uh, In the same way that there've been a lot of comments about me being Jewish. It's, 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 there are things that they probably, all these people, they, I'm not going to even give the satisfaction of naming names, but it's just like, these are people that probably have given zero thought. Or headspace towards these comments that they've made towards me. Mm-hmm. And yet I will f- know them verbatim probably for decades to come.
0: Oh, yeah. You and never that's, forget that's the mean things. I got teased in middle school when I was in PE. This is a really like painful memory, but, <laughs> but, but what's so <laughs> funny is therapy. It's yeah, therapy. it is therapy. But it's so funny. Mine wasn't because I was fat or because I was gay. It was because I was horrible at sports. And this kid like this cool kid in the locker room started calling me Alfredo for no reason. He was like, yo, Alfredo, you suck. And I was like, huh? And then that just became the thing. Like people are like, Alfredo, you suck. Like, 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 I like and I, and it's like this kind of bullying. And it was just like, I would have nightmares at night. And it, and I think for me, like coming out of that was less about body positivity and stuff. It was more about being funny. Like, I think somehow it made, made me like become funny and just like, have a good sense of humor and somehow like I pulled myself out of that and became a little more popular yeah. um, by just you know having a good sense of humor but you know it's like but those traumatic incidents like never leave you they're always at your core but with you it, I'm very interested so I'm reading a book right now called Miriam's Kitchen have you ever heard of it no i think you'd really like it it's um yeah. it's by this woman Elizabeth Ehrlich, whose mother-in-law is a holocaust survivor and it's about her uh, going to cook with her mother-in-law and like learning her mother-in-law's recipes. And it's about her, herself, like struggling with her Jewish identity. And like, she's deciding whether she wants to be kosher and whether she, uh, wants to raise her kids kosher. And, and there's, I just read a chapter where she goes to a mikvah, is that what it's called? Where she yeah, goes to a mikvah, bath,
1: ritual bath.
0: Ritual bath. But I'm curious with you, like, what's your struggle been or not struggle, but what's your journey been in terms of Judaism, in terms of ritual versus religion versus belief, yeah. et
2: cetera?
1: Um, I grew up in a very secular household. We did not have Shabbat. we I always refer to us as most people do a high holiday Jews where it's like Passover, 100% we're, we're doing two Seders. Rosh Hashanah, we're doing a Seder. Yom Kippur, you'll find us a temple for the one time of the year. Um, and my sister and I, like, we had to go to Hebrew school until our we actually had a B'nai Mitzvah together. Um, uh, are you guys together? Twins? No, but we are 13 months apart. So, uh, so she was 12, I was 13. Did
0: you have a theme?
1: Yes. <laughs> What was um, your theme? It was, it was. Uh, it's so embarrassing because I think. Have you seen? You've seen Keeping Up with the Steins, correct? No. What's that? Oh my God! One of the best movies ever. I just my niece just had her her bat mitzvah and we made her watch it because it's with um Daryl Sabara is and Jerry Piven and um the mother from Everyone Loves Raymond. Oh, Doris uh, Roberts. Doris Roberts. Yeah. And, and um, even the one from Kill Bill is in it uh, with the eye patch. Oh, and, Umer um, Thurman. No, 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 no. With iPads. Oh, Daryl uh, Hannah. Daryl Hannah. Hatta, yeah. um, so everyone's in it's about competing bar mitzvahs in LA. Oh, and I would love that. Keeping up with the Joneses thing. And that's really what it was. And I do think that my upbringing, my, re- my reflecting back, it was so just riddled in, in not what it should have been. Yeah. So ours was nautical themed and it was on a yacht that went around the Long Island Sound. It was.
0: Wait, the bar mitzvah was on a yacht? Yes. Wow. Swanky. My bar Ugh. mitzvah theme, my, my mom was, my mom got leftover Broadway decorations and leftover Yan- Yan- Yankees decorations. And she's like, your theme's going to be New York. And I was like, I love it. Okay. But wait, back to you, your religious journey. So you had a b'nai yeah. mitzvah. Yeah.
1: And then we stopped. It was pretty much, that was always the rules. You had right. to get to this, this point and then you can walk away. And, and we did. Um And there was a moment, I think like we, my sister and I did birthright together with a friend of mine and she came back and she was actually really affected by it. Um, and we should tell people
0: and, if they don't know that birthright is where you do, is that where you do the, that's not the March of the Living. It's, no, is- it's
1: a 10 day sponsored trip by the state of Israel to bring anyone who is Jewish, half Jewish, connected to the land of the Jewish people um, to have this trip to see the only Jewish state in the world. And you go through it and there there are definitely issues with it, but at its core, it is about having people find this connection to Israel. And we came back and she was going to school in Alabama for some reason. She was like rebelling and like she had to get away from from New York. And she realized like, I I can't be, there's no Jewish community here. She transferred to Baruch uh, in Manhattan. She became kosher um, and Shomer Shabbos and all this stuff and uh, and then it slowly unraveled and now we're back at like equal levels uh, <laughs> but um, one thing that was really key is when I met my husband and again I had just gotten out of a relationship with a non-Jew um, that lasted many years and that was never really an issue and so I was never really just like looking for a Jew um, but because again, we're gay, so it's not like all the yeah. rules are different for us in general. But then I, I got myself one, and <laughs> the the thing that was so fascinating is that our definitions of the rituals, our definitions of the foods, were completely different. He's Persian Iraqi, even though his his grandfather on his father's side is an uh, Ashken, comes from an Ashkenazi family in New York, which is why his last name was Shapiro. Um, the majority of his influence from family comes from his mother's side, which were Iraqi Jews that grew up in Iran. Um, so he didn't know what Bakka was. He had never had gefilte fish before yeah. his satyrs look completely different from mine. And I think as we started blending families and family traditions, it unlocked this first, I think, passion for me exploring this and we were at the same time trying to build community in the city. We didn't have any friends. We didn't have any gay friends. That was a big mm-hmm. thing. So we didn't have gay friends and we wanted gay friends, but the issue was, is that we don't drink.
2: Mm. We
1: are, we're as, as New York we're Cali sober. And where do you find gay people outside of the gay bar? And that was something we struggled with until we decided to start hosting Shabbat. And I found this awesome organization called One Table. that helped kind of us figure it out and start hosting. And it was pretty immediate that we were building this queer Jewish community. And it wasn't just queer Jews, it was heterosexual Jews. It was queer Gentiles. Like it was, everyone was always welcome at the table. But I think to start to build a small community of people that you really have these similar identities with was super important. And from there it continued. And I think about like, Jewish ritual. And we've made it our own. I'm going to show you. I'll I'll turn the laptop. This is our ketubah, which we had a ketubah ceremony, which is the Jewish marriage certificate um, with a gay Jewish rabbi that we love um, named Matt Green. And he married us. And it was special and unorthodox because for an entire sect of our community, that's meaningless. Mm -hmm. And I think when you start with this already struggled to define meaning because we are outside of the box. It's obviously difficult, but it's also been such a blessing because it's really allowed us to make our own definitions of what Judaism can mean to us, what what we want it to mean to us, how we want to incorporate rituals. I'm not kosher. We don't keep a kosher home. I am very adamant that we do Shabbat. I don't we still watch TV. We still turn on the lights right, where right. it's to, to me. And, and again, some people get upset and to each their own, but I can only, only, only do my work. And I think be successful at reaching others. If I'm authentic to myself and I'm not going to like, Pretend I'm gentle and and go this. this <laughs> I wish you thing. would. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, just just
0: for the books. If Babs scene.
1: if Babs yeah. Calls, yeah.
0: Well, there's a very wise scholar named Leah on the Real Housewives of New York, of course. who she's converting uh, right she now. She's converting, and she said she wanted to convert to Judaism because she needed structure in her life. And it's very interesting because as I, you know, I'm in my forties and I'm married to a director who's. He's like a like he's the opposite. I mean, we both drink, but like he loves going to parties. He loves going out. Like he loves you know. And I'm I'm a little bit like you when you were talking about wanting to be at home at night. Like I'm a homebody. I like dinner parties. Your dinner party,
1: like that's the vibe. That's my life. That's it. That's that's and Craig
0: loves that. He loves dinner parties, but he also loves to go you know to a premiere to this to that. And I'm like oh god. But you know that idea of like having a structure is very appealing, especially now that I'm in my forties. Like the idea of like every Friday night, I'm going to have a Shabbat and like, like candles. And I, I, I guess I'm starting to understand that it's not necessarily, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty relevant to a podcast about psychology because it's about giving your brain that a feeling of safety, like that sense of like, I know it's going to happen. I can look forward to it. This is how it's going to be. These are the rituals. And I can feel calm about that.
1: One of the things that was most, I think, impactful was when I was exploring all of these rituals. I wasn't coming from a place of orthodoxy in which a lot of it is we do what we do because that's how we do it and how it's always been done. Mm -hmm. And to come at it as an adult, there was a lot of questioning, which is inherently a Jewish thing. And when you start to understand the why of these rituals, you're able to really connect to it on another level. Mm -hmm. We talk about Shabbat, the three things that every... Mm-hmm. Most secular Jews would know off the top of their head at the prayers for the candles, the mm-hmm. wine, and the challah, even if they haven't done it since their bar mitzvah. Bore
0: pri the wine, right?
1: Yes, correct. Um, How much is the heart's bread? Is that bread? That's bread.
0: What's the candles?
1: Uh, oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Um,
1: but the reasoning. So we light the candles. It is the ignition of the Shabbat. It is what's designating this one day separate from the rest of the week. The wine is to sanctify it. It's this parallel in a poetic way of describing the transition from grapes, the mundane, into wine, the holy. And it's pretty much creating this designation as you're putting an intention that this day is holy, whether Mm -hmm. that's in a religious sense or just in, in an intention sense, that's your decision. And then the challah, is the conduit for connection with others. Mm-hmm. Bread is what makes it a meal.
2: Breaking and, bread,
1: yeah, yeah. Which, unfortunately, I've been—I was using that, but then I really I did some research. Of the term "breaking bread" is inherently Christian right. uh, or From Catholic. Jesus. It's one of yeah. those, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but same, same idea, same <laughs> he idea. He was um, Jewish. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and and even so, like I, I listened to this this incredible Jewish Torah podcast hosted by um, my my favorite. Disney Channel star when I was a kid, and who's that? Uh, uh, Ravi valman from *Phil of the Future*. Oh, no. uh, I mean millennials. Millennials know because he was like it. Okay. uh And now he hosts this incredible podcast called *The Study*, and every week they go through the Torah portion, but really through a modern lens. And again, I don't go to services. I go to temple, but part of my Shabbat ritual is I listen to this podcast and That's learn great. a little bit about Torah and one thing that came up that was so fascinating was this idea around gift giving and it was talking about the secularization of the Jewish people and this idea that so many of the neuroses that we associate in a very like Larry David curb way for the Mm -hmm. for Jews and the way that we act it's all tied to Torah and there is this section that they were covering about sacrifices and the cyclical idea in the Torah that anything that's gifted to you has to be given back. Mm-hmm. And it's very different from, from Christianity in which which you just, it's gifts from God. And in the past, in the time of the first temple, that resulted in we were doing sacrifices and, and bringing lambs and, and, and all that stuff. And obviously the temple came down, they stopped doing that. But that mentality has stayed within our people for thousands of years mm-hmm. so now it would come out in the same sense of like could you imagine showing up to a dinner party empty-handed right
2: could right. you
1: imagine right. going to uh like I just think of my I would go to any of my bar, my bar mitzvah any birthday my aunt would come to us afterwards how much did my friend give you because I need to give that to her nephew oh, yeah. it, are you it, kidding it's... my
0: mom has records of all that stuff Still, exactly even it's... from my wedding like she's furious it's like you never told me how much so-and-so gave you for your wedding and it's like I don't
1: remember I don't know uh, but that's you hilarious. you think you think it's just like oh it's just quirky Jewish stuff quirky yeah. Jewish mother. no it's actually all tied to the Jewish people and our rituals and uh, traditions for thousands of years.
0: But I want to ask you about superstition versus you know religion because you know reading this book like she's talking about trying to become kosher and like the the degree to which like she's trying to kosherize her kitchen or or what's the word like make it um, Ka- is, um
1: uh, not kashrut know. is it
0: kashrut no that's not it uh but she parv is that right parv
1: no No, parv just means it's not milk or meat
0: oh yeah but like she's like scrubbing her bowls and she's like scolding and it's like if you miss a glass i don't don't know it just like it feels like superstition to me it feels like you bury it in the ground yeah i mean it's like what's gonna happen like you know you're not gonna get struck by lightning i i guess like i have a hard time sometimes and i say this as like someone as a kid who when i was very jewish as a kid like i would be terrified of like doing something wrong or you know um, I mean, I used to want to fast. This is so funny because my, my mom came on my podcast and she maybe cut this part out because she was like, don't put this out there, but I'll say it here. Cause she might, she might actually listen to this one because you're on it. Uh, so sorry, mom, but she got mad at me because I talked about how I used to try to fast for Yom Kippur because I was so nervous, but she would make me eat. She'd be so nervous about me starving myself that she would, you have to eat something. And she's like, don't, don't put that out there. But anyway, yeah, answer. You can, you can answer my question about superstition.
1: It's to each their own. I think there's this this expression that someone, my sister told me from one of her friends. This concept of take the fruit, and it was that it was a Jewish family, and every time they'd go over when they would leave, the grandmother would be like, "Oh, you're, you're going to get hungry. Take a piece of fruit." Right. And they used to be fighting where she'd be like, "No, I'm not hungry. I don't want it. Don't give me the banana. I don't want to do it." And Eventually it was just like the mentality is take the fruit. Even if you throw it out, when you, you get out of the building, it, take it because I am a big believer in, um, in respecting other people's fantasies. And I, fantasy is not the right word, but it's just like right. their beliefs, their, their beliefs. beliefs, their yeah. approaches, their, their, their quirks, their sure. everything I'm because I am like, I'm not, I'm, I'm a quirky person. I have yeah. plenty of faults. Like I, I would hope that people would respect my crazy as much as I want to respect mm-hmm. other people's. That's a good and way to put it. Yeah. When you think about it, it's like this comes up a lot with like family and, and again in, in, in the book you're reading compared to, to my family and my grandmother who was a hidden child in the Holocaust and there are things that she does that are 100% related to this trauma of growing up not only having that, that time of being a hidden child but also having two parents who survived the camps and it the inherited trauma is real the way that it affected yeah. her and my mother and now us. Yeah. Um, it's real. Mm-hmm. And there is often a lot of times trying to change it, trying to better them. It's like, well, they're an adult and do it. And I'm just always very much of the belief of like, they are who they are because of these experiences. Mm-hmm. And the best thing I can do is just accept them for who they are and, and focus on, on not, not causing a ruckus.
0: Right. And you believe, not, you not believe, picking a fight. Yeah. And I, it's funny because as you were talking, I was just thinking about my own rituals that have nothing to do with religion. Like before I go to bed, like I have been writing in a journal for the past couple of years and then I read a book and it's like, I do that every night. Cause it's like, that's how I fall asleep. And it's like, it has nothing to do with religion, but it does have something to do with like the human condition of wanting routine and wanting to yeah. familiarity. So I get that. But now Jake, we need to delve deeper into your psychology. We're just scratching the surface, but I'm curious, like one thing we haven't talked a lot about, you mentioned being gay as a kid and being aware of that. But I'm curious, like with your religious upbringing, or I guess secular upbringing, but having been bar mitzvahed and like, what was your relationship to being gay in terms of your Judaism and your family? And was it something that was a struggle for you or was it an easy thing to come out?
1: It was really easy to come out. I think the thing that was hardest was coming to terms with it internally. Mm -hmm. As soon as I came out, it was fine. And just, I... By the time that I grew up in Queens up until high school, pretty much. And then like bar mitzvah season. And then for bar mitzvah season, we moved out to Long Island and there just weren't people who were out. And it wasn't a community that felt like I had that permission. It was Mm -hmm. a community that I went from growing up in Queens in which it was quite diverse and being a white Jew was the minority to all of a sudden being in a school where everyone is, is Jewish. And not only is that the case, but everyone is praising with like the idea of toxic masculinity and, and these sports players. And it was very much that suburban sports players, sports <laughs> players. And again, I also, I don't I didn't do sports, Athletes. I didn't do about but, um, it was something that I started to kind of play around with and. Uh, Um play around with in terms of like in my head in (laughs) my head like acting on it. And it wasn't until my freshman year of college. And I think once like they got out of that bubble and started interacting with gay people, it was pretty much Mm -hmm. like, oh no, no, no. I'm I'm also gay. Let's let's do this.
0: Where did you go to college? Uh the Culinary Institute of America. Oh, right. That's really cool. So what's it like? This is just sort of a sidebar, not psychologically relevant, but For people who are listening, who've considered going to the CIA, Culinary Institute of America, what what was that experience like for you?
1: It was incredible. It was uh, really, really incredible. I think for me, especially because I was coming straight from high school and using this as my full bachelor's degree as a college experience. I think for other people who are potentially, there were a lot of people that were later in life career changers. um, But I think to have that kind of structure and discipline Put in at such a young age when I was just passionate but clueless was important, and it opened up so many doors. And I think I just really focused on being the best I could be. Mm-hmm. And at the end, it's like then I started seeing like, all right, I actually don't like working in restaurants. Let's right. pivot and go work in test kitchens. All right, I actually don't want to do this. I want to focus on that. And then it, it was really, it was really it set the foundation for me. I was able to take a really great food writing course in my bachelor's studies that helped kind of set the- Who the, taught it? Um, Irina Chalmers, a James Beard Award winning uh, writer who was also an incredible mentor to Aaron McDowell, who's uh, also a CIA alum. And uh, we were very close. We were very, very, very close. Ah. And I, I like brought her, I remember like when I got my first byline at Sever. I took the train off and brought her a copy of the magazine uh, to show. That's so
0: sweet. Um, I was going to say, we we skipped a beat though, because we didn't talk about you getting interested in cooking. Like how old were you? When did that happen?
1: It was in high school. And I was of the age where I, or the, of the generation where I would come home and I would just put on the food network. And I was in that. It's, yeah. it's another reason why I hysterically cried when Rachel Ray was, was supportive because like, I would come home and I would put on and I would watch, I remember, I remember it was uh, Ina Garten. And then right after Ina was Giada. And then right after Giada was Rachel. And I would watch them back to back to back almost every day. Mm -hmm. And I would do my homework in front of the TV, watching their shows. And I've always had this, this, I've had two obsessions in my life and it's food and pop culture. Mm -hmm. And whatever was in the zeitgeist when it came to pop culture i was in it. reality television i was really at that forefront like surreal life and like flavor of love and and all of these these shows that were starting to push the bounds what it meant to be a public figure and put yourself out authentically and what made good television what made good drama and what didn't work and then housewives and that was all happening at the same time as I was watching the super cookie cutter food network <laughs> and obsessed with it. And what made, what was the equation for a good episode of Barefoot Contessa or of Giada? And mm. to me, it was, whether I, I knew it or not then, it is what has kind of directed my path now and for the last, I don't know, decade.
0: Well, uh, it's so funny because I'm a different generation than you, but it's the same story for me, except I would watch the Food Network every day after school and it would be Sarah Moulton, Sarah Secrets, Mario Batali, you know. Not great anymore, but but I I learned so much watching his show. Um, I think I think Ina was on around then. Um, They used to show the two fat ladies, which I loved. If you've never seen it, that is the greatest cooking show of all time. Uh, It's fantastic. But yeah, it's the same idea. It's like just watch. And I think with Ina in particular, it was funny because her show at the beginning was all about her world. It was about her like friends and her dinner parties and Susan Stroman coming over and her gay gardener and her gay florist. And now it's like very controlled. It's very like just little snippets of her and her kitchen and her barn and like cutaways to like making the potatoes. But I just love that idea of like hosting and having people over and parties. So I totally get that as a big influence. So you cooked in high school. So one thing that like for me and my family, like I felt like cooking was gendered, even though my mom never cooked. I felt like it was discouraged because I was a boy and I'm curious, like in your family, was that, was that ever a thing? Was your, so it sounds like you no. came from a, a pretty liberal family.
1: Very. And I mean, I had two working parents. So oftentimes we had to kind of fend for ourselves when it came to dinner. And it was, I think it really all ties into the, 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 the being heavy, the not being popular community. And I really, I, found it almost like an addiction when I started hosting these parties and seeing the reaction that people had to me cooking for them mm-hmm. and that feeling of connection, that feeling of community, that feeling of, um, the exchange of, of the transaction of hospitality and love mm-hmm. and whether that's healthy or not, like that's not what I'm here to, to talk about and I am, no, that's interesting. About the fact yeah. that, that it was, it was something that I couldn't get enough of. Well, it sounds like
0: your body or feeling self-conscious growing up, like you felt like you were the object of ridicule. And then uh, now it's sort of like you're the opposite, like you're the object of desire. It's like, you know, people want what you're giving, what you're offering. It's sort of like food and all of this has transformed how you feel about yourself and and your role in society.
1: Which is why, like, I've done, again, I did Danielle. I did, did all the fancy restaurants I've done the magazines where it's crazy complicated recipes and all this stuff, none of it does it for me. Like mm-hmm. recipe and cooking and and the everything I put out there is with the intention that you are cooking for others, that you mm-hmm. are extending hospitality, that you are creating a moment to share a meal mm-hmm. with people you love. And that's that 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 is always the first thought in everything I do. So
0: is your family, you mentioned that they were secular, but now that you're, this is such a huge part of your life, do they come to your Shabbat dinners? Have they become more ritualistic or observant
1: because I mean, of you? I will say it's like, for example, like my, my grandmother, my uncle, they're all very, they're, they're quite religious. Um, my dad, no, my grandmother, who unfortunately passed at the beginning of last year, sorry. Um, she, we were very, very close very close she was um she was the she was the the one of the biggest influences in my life because she was this woman who was a poor girl poor Jewish girl from Brooklyn who had big dreams and worked her way up and was not educated and then when she put my um sent my father to college she went to college at the same time wow. to get her master's she's done everything from run like the the methadone clinic at. Uh, Beth Israel here in the city to working in advertising, being a secretary, and then she ended up she like became a real realtor and like when she was sixty or in her fifties, and then had a thirty year career as a big realtor. Amazing. And you know, she left Park Slope. I was very blessed to grow up with my great grandmother who lived until one hundred and two from eighteen ninety eight to two thousand and one wow. or two, and. When she passed, my, my grandmother was like, I'm fulfilling this dream. And she moved to Fifth Avenue, right in the village. And she was the first person who exposed me to culture, who would take me to these nice restaurants and to go see movies mm-hmm. and, and everything in the city that was so like next level. And we, so we would do, um, we do high holidays every year with her and her best friend who is is prominent in the Jewish world. So. Um, that was our ritual, and it still is, even even though she is not with us. Um, but for my immediate family, the shabbats were happening at my mother's apartment because I don't know about you, but I live in a new, new York apartment. I have a table that can <laughs> fit see. a lot of people, I so see. I was using my mother. And to be fair, I live in the same apartment building as my mother and my sister. Not anymore. My mother just moved two blocks away, so okay, she's in the area. You got some
0: space, yeah.
1: But. I was doing it out of her apartment because she had a table that could fit 12. And it was really amazing because my family got to come and uh, then like a lot of Alex's family who's in the city has come. um, And then his family's this. a lot of his family is in the city as well. So doing Shabbat has been this great bonding experience for bringing our families together. And then also Mm -hmm. incorporating my family with my friends because that's something that's very important to me is that my friends know and love my sister and her husband because they're our best friends. And and mm-hmm. same with my husband's brother and his wife, they're our best friends as well. So to share that in this community we've built was very important to us. And I do think that there has been an increased desire to explore Jewish ritual. I don't think anyone's become more religious because I don't think we are more religious. I think we are more um, intentional about making space for Judaism and these rituals, but not necessarily letting it dictate our lives. Mm -hmm. And I can say that that's probably a similar vibe with the rest of our families.
0: So if I was to host a Shabbat dinner, I know I would probably make challah bread. Uh, What else would I make?
1: So one of the key things when I was doing the book was like, I wanted the whole book to be something that people could make multiple recipes at once and not freak out because there's nothing, I think there's nothing, no, there should be no stress when it comes to entertaining or throwing a dinner party. Um, but what you do have to do is then put some thought into it of, of what's happening. And the best part is so much of Jewish food, so much of at least um, many of the core dishes of the Ashkenazi, Mizrahi, Sephardic communities are- I mean, Mizrahi, that, like
0: Isaac Mizrahi?
1: Like Isaac Mizrahi. Here's the thing, most people don't know that People pretty much define like, oh, you're either Ashkenazi, or if you're not Ashkenazi, you're Sephardic, and that's something that happens all the time. It's not actually true. Um, the Sephardim are the Jews of uh, Spain that mm-hmm. then went to the North Africa, and they're a specific sect. But Mizrahi Jews are the Jews that never left the Middle East. Mm. So these—that's a real the thing. Jews- I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, so these are the Jews that stayed in in in, in Israel Palestine. These are Jews that stayed in Iran and Iraq and in. in in all of the, these uh, countries, well, at least where the borders are currently drawn, but um, so much is it's like, people can't put current day borders on these history lessons when it was like all oh, the Persian empire, or then you think of the, like, how did the Jews end up in, in Europe? Well, it's because the Romans knocked down the temple and took tens of thousands of Jewish slaves back to, to, right. uh, to Italy. And all of this helps really explain um the movement of Jewish people a lot of it rooted in trauma and how that's affected our food ways and the way that we've maintained ritual but adapted to where we've been um, and sometimes it's tough because you have people that don't want us to claim certain foods or certain things that have become absorbed into our tradition based on on circumstances that were, were frankly, not part of our control. Right. Um, but the other side of that is this really, really, really beautiful um, way to look at how broad Jewish food is and can be, and how the rituals have lasted. But that's a long way to come back to it. All of these communities, again, were keeping the Sabbath. So it was dishes, there were dishes that had to cook low and slow, because mm. they would throw it in, in pretty much like the, the dying embers of, of the bread oven, and they would pick it up so they could have a warm meal on Shabbat. So when I think of, of Shabbat, I'm thinking of cholin and brisket, or these Persian stews that like, they don't taste good or as good if you, you serve it the same day you make it, you got to let it cool down, pop right. it in the fridge, and then reheat it. Um, so that's always been my mentality yeah, I love braising
0: so that's that's great that's perfect
1: it's always braising braising is is it is a jew's best friend
0: even in summer
1: oh of course I mean like I it's funny I've been talking about I it's I uh, I, I always feel so weird about it because I don't want like name drop but like um, name drop I, do it no but it's, it's, it's okay I have become uh, close with Katie Kirk um over the past year she's been very supportive of the book Man. and sh- her like many people have got had gotten a cold I feel like everyone's seeing people they she got her first cold um, so I made her mothball soup and dropped it off at her apartment and it, I posted a, and I did a, a recipe video because I've been seeing so many people get sick and I was like all right well like I named it as like this is hot soup summer because I don't uh, believe that like soup needs to be just for the cold months. I love my bowl soup all year round. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'm having hot soup. Right. I'm having hot soup in the summer too. Just like right. put on the air conditioning. I'm not gonna like.
0: You need to make a T-shirt. Hot soup summer.
1: That's coming soon. Oh yeah, coming soon. Stay tuned.
0: Stay tuned. Wow, Jake, you're like, and I should ask. I mean, so you are a TikTok sensation. Is that true? I mean, I'm not even. I don't even understand TikTok. This is a generational thing, but. Like I watch your videos on Instagram when they when they show up the similar kind of thing that it's like you're showing the food, you're narrating and stuff. Is it, so how much work goes into those?
1: I mean, it's the same work as this, this is no different than when I was pitching recipes and concepts to different food publications to have a byline everywhere. It's the same amount of work, same amount of, of, of mentality, if not more, because I'm the one who's like shooting and editing it yeah. versus having a team. Um, but one of the things we talked about—the old gatekeepers—they're still there. They're not, I mean, they might not be so old, but they're still gatekeepers. People telling you your ideas are good, your ideas oh, yeah. are bad. Ah, eh, we actually don't want that. Oh, yeah. eh, All eh. the ones at the New York and,
0: Times are not a fan of mine. I've been pitching them forever. It's never I mean, never but happened. That,
1: but that's 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 like what I have come to terms with. Is like I would rather put my stuff out on the internet, and with the beauty of things like TikTok and Instagram Reels is. I can get more views and eyes and impressions on a recipe that I post in my own account than if I get it published in one of these legacy publications.
0: That's incredible. And I mean, that's really, really true and cool. And I think I experienced that in the early days with food blogging, because I would do my food blog stuff and people would pay attention and they would be like, oh, what? I have my own platform. Like, why would I, you know, kowtow to these powerful people?
1: And I've done it for, I've done so much of the the pandering to what they're gonna like in the seo and and yeah. this and that and like oh can we can we workshop this can we greenhouse this into something more in line with what our our audience likes so about their audience like well actually go fuck yourself because i'm <laughs> gonna do what what i like and i have built a community of people that feel the same way about food and cooking and and I don't need the world to love me. I don't need to be everyone's favorite chef. I'm not looking to take over the world. I would rather have a smaller community of people that see eye to eye with my uh, thoughts on hospitality, on cooking, on all of these things and have that conversation and dialogue with them on the internet versus focusing on being America's sweetheart. Because guess Mm -hmm. what? I I also am a strong believer that if everyone loves what you're doing, you're not making an impact. Mm. You have to, like, it just has to be both ways. I am some people's cup of tea. And for other people, they don't get it or they don't like it or it's not for them. And that's fine.
0: Are the people who don't like you mostly Jewish people who don't like how you're representing?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. I get that sometimes. Again, most of them, I know it's like good, for it's still good for the Jews. They might give me some, they might give me some slack. It's like, oh, what a shanda! you have pork. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, at the end of the day, I think that, That's the beauty of food media is that it's so vast and Mm -hmm. there can be one of everyone. Democratic. Uh, More than than one of everyone. I think it's so horrible that traditional food media has created this idea that one person has to represent a cuisine or a nationality or any of these things acting like I could represent all of the Jews at once. There are Jewish communities across Africa, India, China, all of Europe and the Middle East, and to have one person be the face of Jewish food, it is terrible. So, that if the New York why... Times
0: called you up tomorrow and said, We want you to be the new face of Jewish food for the New York Times, you would say no?
1: Oh, no, no, no I'm going to say, Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, 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 I got gotta, gotta, gotta to play the game. The Times are calling doing the 10, the ten essential Jewish I recipes. Love, I love
0: that rant, and then like mid rant, like pivot.
1: <laughs> the time, the Times is the only one I would call. If the Times called and said, Do 10 essential Jewish recipes, I'm in. But in general, um, I think that the idea behind it it's less so about whether I would do it to represent the Jews. It's more so that I don't think that one person can represent everything. And that's why I found such incredible camaraderie and community of other Jewish food writers and the power of the Joe Nathans and the Adina Sussmans and the Leah Koenigs and and Mike Salmanov and all of these people that have such different and important views on Jewish food and perspectives Mm -hmm. and what they add to this conversation, the more the better. I think that I am of a generation that is focusing on celebration and lifting up other voices. And I, I think that there's something so important. I think so much of my beginning experience in food media were people who've been so burned by this idea that you were pinned against each other. And there could only be one winner of who was going to get the job, who was going to get the story, who was going to get that. Um, And that wasn't in the Jewish space. That was just in general, like food editors Mm -hmm. um, of people who were truly, truly vicious. Everyone was vicious. And it's like, the fact is some of these people, most of them whom I don't speak to anymore, just like they, they decided they wanted to play that game. And I just don't think that anything in the realm of of negativity needs like food and what we do. We're not like, we're not curing cancer. We're not fixing the world. We are making the world a more delicious place. We're helping inspire people to create community. We're doing some really great work, but like, let's not get it twisted. Like we need to take this pretty lightly. Yeah. Um, well, also, like you created like-
0: your own game, like you created your own thing, and that's. I mean, I I relate to that because of you know my like Instagram and my um Substack. I mean, doing Substack feels so liberating. It's like I am literally only writing to people who want to read what I have to write. It's it feels so God nice. Was. Yeah. Um, by the way, when you listed all the Jewish uh, food writers who are out there, do you know Roberts is my last name, but it was changed from Rothenberg during World War II
1: so common that's in my family there's so there were heilberg um the, the my mother's main name was heilberg and half the family changed it to hilburn mm-hmm. to sound less jewish oh, in interesting. my husband's family it was um it's uh uh it's right now it's daniel but it was a But when they moved to iran some of them changed it to Azizpar. <laughs> it's this constant story and like yeah. again it's current it's in the news right now with the 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 interview on the cutting room floor which is another kind of conversation about that but uh what do you mean i don't even know what you're
0: talking about
2: there was this
1: there was this there was this podcast with an interview with the founder of man repeller and it was this you'll just have to look it up because i I don't need to be like talking about i just think it's a really interesting conversation on the discussion of jews and assimilation and whether that like what role does that play in our conversations about identity and mm-hmm. if we need to be changing our names to have any sort of respect or ability to have success in this country and that's yeah. why it's like i am very proud that i have a very jewish last yeah year. i'm very proud that i have a very jewish nose and i grew up in a well, community I, got that. In which I definitely
0: have that for sure i
1: was and they <laughs> good, to, my husband and i both grew up with this mentality that like oh we should get nose jobs mm-hmm. because this is not the standard of beauty here and now i love that i have a big jewish nose i love that i have schnoz
0: that's nightmare. the name of your next that's cookbook schnoz <laughs> my Schnaz. mom my mom used to say at the table it would be like having dinner she'd be like you know, there's nothing wrong with a boy getting a nose job and she would just say it i guess we're, like, okay.
1: that's, i mean it's but it's so <laughs> commonplace and it, yeah. it, it becomes ingrained in us and our yeah. society that that's what you have to do in order to to just have the bait like just baseline that's yeah. the stuff you got to do. And- no, I
0: own, I own my nose and you own yeah. yours. And I think that's healthy. Well, Jake, we're almost at the end of the, of the interview. And we, I always start the podcast with, what did you have for lunch? But I end it with, what are you having for dinner tonight?
1: So there are two options. I have a bunch of corn and I've been really into uh, like sauteing it and doing it catch you a pepe style mm. with pasta. So just like pretty much catch you a pepe with corn, yeah. um, which is great. Most likely, we're going to get high and order Thai food. <laughs> but I mean, it really, it's like it's choose your own adventure for tonight. One will be for night. One will be for Shabbat for tomorrow. And who knows? Couldn't you get
0: high and make the corn cacio y e pepe?
1: Yeah, but I, it, it comes down to if I want to. Um, if I'm feeling like, it, it, it depends on if I'm feeling it. Because people are always like, oh, do you cook every meal? Every meal. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Like, this, this, like, like a wind-up toy. And at the end of the day, it's like, I cook a lot because I love to cook yeah and there are moments that I don't want to cook and sure. we are so blessed to live in the culinary capital of the universe
0: um <laughs> so when you cook um like corn katsu y pepe do you separate like your video making from the cooking you do at home for your you and your husband or like how does that all work depends
1: it depends like um it depends on the moment I try to use a lot of meals as opportunities for testing especially um I'm working on book two. Yeah, I was and, gonna ask um, you. It's, uh, and like that book one was done the same way of like Shabbats are the way that I test these recipes because I need to see how they look in action. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a balance. So for example, if I'm doing this tonight, then most likely, again, it's gonna be dark, not ideal. I do have a light, but the whole thing is, this will be more so just for testing the recipe, getting the timing, getting the, the balance of ingredients right. And then I would make it again during the day at some point next week, and then that's what you would see on the internet. Um, oh, so you just shoot, to make sure
0: you shoot your TikToks during the day.
1: Ideally, again, it's yeah. like I'm blessed that I don't have a I don't have like a day-day job. My day day yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, no, doing that makes a lot of sense. And writing books, yeah. Because yeah.
0: my thing is like my Instagram is like I I do stories as I cook at night, but
1: there's they're not like I productive. love your stories. I love them. I Thank love you. them. Oh my god! It's just like I always want to be there because you give the true vibe of the dinner party and then it's like who's coming and then yeah. it's like all right playing like
0: either
1: <laughs> uh, typically it's gay geography of like oh my god they he, them at the party like, oh my god uh-huh.
0: like, <laughs> well you'll have to come over for dinner next time you're in la so um that. well i'm gonna see you on tuesday so uh and by the time people hear this um we'll have already had lunch so don't try to they stop us. They w-
1: they'll see it on instagram we've posted we'll yeah you have posted it
0: and yeah but uh, Jake, thank you so much for doing this. Mazel have on your book. And everyone who's listening, go out and buy Jewish if you haven't already. And I'll see you soon. Can't wait. All right. Thanks, Jake.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye.